Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April 23rd, 2015, and this is episode 1563 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a great guy hanging on the line. I'll be bringing him on in just a moment. His name is Gary Collins. Maybe you guys have heard him before. Maybe if you're new to the show, you haven't. But Gary is really big into the primal slash paleo lifestyle. In fact, he's the, the, the founder of the Primal Power Method of Diet and Nutrition and Lifestyle. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that today, but we're going to talk more about his efforts to establish a remote, off-grid house. And it's taken him multiple years of time to put this together, and he's doing it slowly. He's paying as he goes. He's doing it all with cash. And he's going to end up eventually with a really awesome off-grid homestead, debt-free, uh, in the, the, the mountains of Washington State. And uh, he's creating an incredible lifestyle for himself. And he'll be here to talk to you about how maybe you can do the same type of thing. Before I do that, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to take care of you. And sponsor of the day number one today is Western Botanicals. When I have a long day... Out on the homestead, and I'm aching and sore, I climb into a bottle at the end of the day. Not a bottle of Jack Daniels or Jim Beam, but a, ba a bottle of the uh, turmeric formula from Western Botanicals. I don't know if it'll help you. Uh, I can't make medical claims, and I don't. All I can tell you is that when I feel like crap and I ache, that that works for me. And there's a lot of other stuff that works for me from Western Botanicals as well. I like their essential oils. Uh, I actually like their deep heat ointment a lot, too, for achy, sore muscles and a lot of other cool stuff there. And if you're not sure what you need or you can't find what you're looking for, I'll put it to you this way. If it's herbal and legal, they have it. You can find it at Western Botanicals. And if you have trouble locating it on their website, pick up the phone, give them a call. Well, real people who really care about you will answer the phone and help you with whatever you're looking for. I love Western Botanicals because they don't try to claim to be, you know, something that cures cancer or some sensationalistic BS. They're a real company that really cares, and they have really great products. They also support the Member Support Brigade by giving away their premium membership. They sell it for $50 bucks every day to other people, but... You can get it for $25 uh, if you are just a listener of TSP and use the banner on our website when you go to order their premium membership. And then you get discounts of 25% off everything they sell. But it gets better. It gets better. If you're a member of my member support brigade, you get it free. Yep, absolutely free. You'll get 25% off all orders at Western Botanicals. And they'll just set you up with the membership. You call them the first time after that. You, you got it. You got it made. Anyway. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. Uh, you might realize I, I talked about Knife Kits earlier this week. Somehow they fell out of my rotation with the scheduling of the show. And uh, so I wanted to give them a, kind of an extra lift this week because Knife Kits is a great sponsor. They've been with us for four years. Four years of sponsoring a podcast. And if you check out KnifeKits.com and like the Blade Forums, you'll find everybody loves them. They're a great supplier. They have lots of cool stuff. They have exotic materials. They have basic kits. They've got it all. And what a great project to, to start developing your skills or to help your children develop skills. And, you know, as I said earlier this week, a lot of times people are apprehensive about something like making a knife. Well, the kits are basically the blade. All of that's done. It's all shaped. It needs to be sharpened. And then you're basically you're putting fitting the handle, and let's say you screwed it up. You just screwed it up. Buy some new handle material and do it again until you get it right. It's not that much money, 
What a great way to get started in knife making, and you never know where that might lead. There's people right out of this community that make a living making knives, and there's people that just do it as a hobby. Check out knifekits.com to learn more about that today. Remember, they also do a discount for members of the Support Brigade. You can get those discounts in the benefits section of the MSB if you're a member. Again, the MSB, Members of Support Brigade. If you want to know more about that and you're not a member yet, just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members. And uh, you can also send me an email if you are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder, uh, active duty or prior service. Just send that email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one sentence. It's all I need. And I'll send you the discount code. Do that before, not after you join. And uh, I'll set you up with a, a great deal on a product that's already great. Everybody else, consider joining the MSV. Basically, if you think this show's worth 20 cents a day, you join the MSV, and that's what it works out to, and then you get all those great discounts that more than pay for your membership. Check it out today again, thesurvivalpodcast.com, and click on Members. Next up, let us take a look at the year that was the episode of the year. It's 1563, a long time ago. We have the Council of Trent Outlaws Idol Worship, but not PBS. And we have the godly Puritans and the need to follow our oaths. Um, I am going to read the Council of Trent Outlaws Idol Worship, but not PBS, because there's something too personal in here for me to talk, that not talk about from my childhood as a kid in Catholic school. You might wonder why there's so much of a religious overtone to this time period uh, in the history segments. And it's not because I'm overtly religious, because I'm not. And it's not because uh, Alex Shrugged, who puts these together for us at TSP Wiki, is Jewish uh, and, and, a, and an Orthodox Jew at that. It is simply because religion played such a huge role in history at the time. Don't know why I felt like I should tell you that, but I did. I haven't heard any complaints or anything, but I'm sure people are like, what's all this church stuff? Well, you can't talk about the 15 and 1600s without talking about the impact religion played on history, uh, at least, you know, frequently. Anyway, the Council of Trent outlaws idol worship and not PBS. With the Protestant Reformation breathing down their necks, the Pope called for a special church council to resolve many of the controversies at hand and possibly generate a counter-reformation. After 18 years of debating and politicking, the final resolution has come. It is a complex and wordy document, but it defines what the Catholic Church will become in the modern day. One thing that stands out in contrast to the modern-day impression of the Catholic Church is its prohibition of the worshiping of statues and images, essentially paintings. They state the Catholics shall not worship images or statues. These images only represent, are only representations of the saints in Christ. The church decrees that anyone who is still worshiping these images should stop doing so immediately. A collective sigh of relief can be heard, but it is not going to be enough to stop the Reformation and reunite the church. My take by Alex Shrugged. So when people fall to their knees before a statue of the Virgin Mary, they are not worshiping the statue themselves. They are remembering her virtue and using her image as a mental focus to make their connection with God. I am being deliberately vague here. Fill in the details on your own. That is what is happening amongst informed Catholics. What is happening amongst the less informed Catholics, I'm not so sure. I'm convinced their hearts are in the right place, though there will be no resolving this issue here. The miracle of the Council of Trent is that it happened at all. Those so-called indulgences look a lot like bribes to the no-hassle pass. Almost every church and synagogue or PBS station does this on some level, but there is a fine line between having your business sponsor the local church picnic or the latest episode of Nova 
and outright buying, uh, paying for a business introduction. I'm leaving it up to members of the church at your local affiliate to decide where you draw the line. I actually have a totally different take on this, uh, about the statues. When I was a kid, I went to Catholic school until I managed to get myself thrown out. What I'm about to tell you is a story that wasn't why I got thrown out, but is the type of thing that led up to basically, yeah, he can't stay here anymore. He he asks too many questions that we don't like. And that really is kind of the, 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 the truth about how I ended up asked to leave a Catholic school. Uh, this was about sixth grade. We were taking, we had comparative religion. And I'll tell you, the Catholic Church kind of looks at the Reformation as a very positive thing. And what Alex said here about, like, the modern church is a result of the Reformation is how it's taught to you. And everything here is how it's taught to you, except, well, it's not necessarily the way that it's practiced. Here's what I mean. So during comparative religion, we were discussing uh, different religions, including the Hindu faith, which sees the cow as sacred. And, you know, sixth grade, you're pretty young, and you, you understand eating, and you understand dying if you don't eat. And we've seen these pictures of these cattle in India that look pretty sad, but they were cows, and, you know, they do make steak and burger, I'm just saying. And how these people that were living right alongside the cows were basically starving to death and would not slaughter the cows to eat them because they held the cow as sacred. Um, And I made some kind of wise-ass comment, and this comment was wise-ass. It was something along the lines of, that doesn't make any sense, or that's dumb, or why would you do that, or something like that. And I just popped off. So that was wrong of me, but you're a kid. It's what you do. And that's what I'm thinking. So the teacher says, well, what do you mean? What do you mean, John? Yeah, John's my uh, legal name. And I said, well, if I was there, and I'm going to die if I don't eat that cow, then I'm going to eat the cow. I'm not going to die so that the cow can live. It's a cow. And she said, well, that, that, that just means you don't understand their faith and their culture, which was true. But then she followed up with this. If, if there was a, a huge snowstorm here and we were all freezing to death, would you chop up the statues in the church and burn them to stay warm? I said, absolutely, I would. She was shocked and aghast. Oh, my God. And long story short, I had to talk to the Monsignor again. And the conversation went something to the effect of, Just because something is true doesn't mean you necessarily should be saying it. <laughs> and, and my response to that was something far less sophisticated, but the point was, if not while somebody's teaching a bunch of people uh, that it's true, when it's wrong, then when? Which resulted in a sigh and a pat on the head and being sent back to class and asked to just be more polite. And if I had such questions, it would be better that I talk to the priest or the Monsignor priest, or if I had to talk to the teacher about it, that I do so after class. <sighs> But there is clearly a disconnect there. There's clearly a disconnect there. And it was one of the things, one of the many things that led me to depart from organized religion long before I departed from even the ideals of organized religion. Just an interesting thing. And I would ask you, would you burn a statue to stay warm? I think most people, realizing what the official position, even if you're Catholic, of the Catholic Church is, would say, yeah, it's just a statue. It's a representation. It's not holy. It's a piece of wood, even according to the church. But that was not permitted for, well, a 12-year-old to point out. Just saying. Um, not really historical, just something that went on in the 1980s. Anyway, I made a blunder this week. Um, I absolutely did include the Bob Wells Plan of the Week 
in the show on Tuesday in the write-up, but I didn't read it. I don't know how that happened. So before we bring Gary on, let me do that for you. Bob Wells' plan of the week this week is the Choctaw Paper Shell Pecantry. It's as adaptable from Zone 6 to Zone 9. The pecan tree produces early in the season, and at the sh and, and the shell is medium to soft. The Choctaw pecan is perfect as a commercial orchard tree. It's also an exceptional shade tree and makes an outstanding edible producing yard tree. Uh, these trees produce very large paper shell nuts when grown under optimum climate and fertilization conditions. They are loaded with nutty flavor. And a crunchy taste. This is the type of pecan you see sold at stands in rural areas, often purchased by passing tourists in pecan country. You can find this plant more at Bob Wells Nursery. Bob Wells Nursery specializes in edible landscape. Fruit trees, berry plants, vine fruit, nut trees, as well as hard-to-find specialty trees. Uh, a couple things I'd add to this is, number one, I think a pecan tree or two or three or four, are one of the best long-term investments a person can make if a, pro if a property has some size to it. Um, they take a long time to really start producing for you, but once they do, the amount that you get off even a single tree is extensive. I would also add that it makes a lot of sense to make sure you have uh, multiple varieties of pecan so that you get cross-pollination. Generally speaking, it's advisable to get what's called a Type 1 and Type 2 tree, If you're not sure what you're looking for and you're going to get these trees from Bob, talk to them and they'll make sure you pick two of the right varieties. Uh, I also find out, though, in a lot of places it's not that necessary because in a lot of places in the South, well, there's pecans all over the place. In my personal view, one of the best courses of action to take to ensure good uh, pollination of pecans is if you're going to have, let's say, two Uh, grafted varieties, improved varieties, use a type 1 and a type 2, and then plant somewhere in the area several to half a dozen seedling pecans of wild varieties. And you're going to get plenty of cross-pollination. And the wild variety pecans never produce quite the size of the pecans of the grafted varieties, but the wild seedling pecans generally produce very sweet nuts, very good-tasting nuts. And they also are good for wildlife, etc. So uh, if I was doing a pecan orchard, so to say, and I was going to put in 40 trees for long-term overstory. In, in, in addition to all the overplanting you know that I would do and the successing out over time and getting production before the pecans and then successing those out as the shade comes in, I would probably, per, per 10 trees at least, plant one seedling variety and kind of stagger them through the, through the, through the nursery on the end rows so they don't interfere with like mechanical harvest if you're going to use mechanical harvest. It's just... That's what I would do to, to get the, the maximum amount of, of reliable cross-pollination. If you're putting in two trees and that's all you're putting in, I wouldn't sweat it. You're still going to get plenty of pecans. But if you put one pecan in all by itself and none of your neighbors have pecans, you may never see a pecan in your lifetime. You probably will see a couple, but you'll never see the big yields. You've got to have some cross-pollination there. Anyway, with that, I am ready to bring our special guest on the air. It is Gary Collins. Hey, Gary, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Hey, thanks a lot, Jack. It's uh, been a little bit, but it's nice to always be on and be in front of your listeners. They always have great things to say to me after the show, so... Well, I'm glad to have you back. Now, we do have new people coming on every day, so some people may not be familiar with you. So I'm going to give you basically the same question I, I give every guest, and that is, e even though we're on today to talk mostly about your off-grid project, you know, what do you do professionally, and yeah. how did you get into that? Kind of what's your background? What's the, what's the path that led you to doing what you do now for a living? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, what I do is a little 
complicated in the sense that I dabble in a few things. But my primary business is health and nutrition on the primal paleo ancestral health side. Um, my website is primalpowermethod.com. Throw that in right now. And I write a book series that basically runs people through a health program. And it's for basically a primal way of life, but it's also a way to change your life. So it's not just about weight loss and exercise. And I always tell people I'm the whole kind of enchilada. I teach everything, you know, it's self-sufficiency, survivalism, you know, health, nutrition, just be a better person. Don't be a, you know, a shithead. And, you know, <laughs> I, and I work on that with myself every day. I think you should make that your new strap line. <laughs> Primal Power Method logo and on the bottom of the strap line, don't be a shithead. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, as you get older, you just meet too many people like that, and you get tired of it. But yeah, so that's kind of the focus of my company, and what I do in the company is Primal Power Method. But I come from you know a small town guy, so I'm a little different in the sense that I fit in more with the survivalist community for sure. Grew up in a little town in the Sierra Nevadas, eighteen hundred people. Grew up on you know around ranches. Grew up fishing, hunting, the whole bit. I was a little poor redneck. Grew up in a trailer, and. uh was able to get myself out, uh, went to college. Uh, that's a topic for another time. I know we could talk about that forever. And uh, was in the military, was in federal law enforcement. And in federal law enforcement, I ended up getting into healthcare fraud. And the last part of my career, I worked for the Food and Drug Administration as a special agent criminal investigator. So it kind of opened up my eyes to the nasty side of health and how our government controls about everything we do in health and what we eat, you know, drugs, pharmaceuticals, uh, anything to do with supplements. I mean, you name it, the government's got their hands in it. And it just kind of got me on a different path because I thought I was healthy, um, even though I was getting older and feeling worse and worse and worse. And once I started investigating some of the more uh, holistic practitioner uh, facilities and and uh, naturopath doctors and it was interesting. I started following the path. Don't get me wrong. Some of these people were real bad. Um, but I started reading their material and I changed my life and changed my nutrition and how I applied how I eat every day and how I look at food. And it turned my life around. I mean, I have lifelong allergies, asthma, eczema, adult acne, mood swings, cranky headaches, you know, fatigue, the whole bit, achy joints. And all of that pretty much went away once I got my diet squared away and figured out everything I was doing wrong. And so with that, I wanted to share all the information that I'd learned over the years with people in order to make it simple. Because the process, as you know, Jack, you, you, you do paleo. Yep. And the process can get pretty convoluted and complicated if you don't have the right information and you end up down the wrong rabbit hole. And you actually can do damage to yourself instead of helping yourself, which I did. I went down a couple wrong roads with bad information. And once I straightened it out, I said, okay. I kept getting asked questions. I was working with clients, and that's where the whole book series started. So I have three books. Uh, one is Change Your Body, Change Your Life. The other one's your Organic Caveman and then Accompanying Meal Guide. So they all tie together to give you the whole package on changing your health. You know, I want to say something about the whole diet and lifestyle before we move on to your off-grid yeah. stuff that we can maybe chat about that I think people need to understand. It's, it's, it certainly isn't just about weight loss. Um, I'm a guy that shed about 90 pounds. 
Occasionally, I put 10 to 15 of it back on, and then I take it back off. And you can see a video of me one day, and the gut's hanging a little bit. You see me a video of me like two weeks later, and the gut's back. And I have that fluctuating weight, and I am at peace with it because I'm not busting my ass with a shovel and a pick every day. Um, but the bigger benefit to me isn't just going from almost 300 pounds to 210 pounds. And while I believe that probably saved my life, uh, or at least saved me shortening my life, I'll tell you that one of the things you said about the way you feel is a bigger thing. And I used to be the guy that if I forgot to eat or I got busy and didn't eat for a while, I would start to sweat. Yeah. I would turn into, you talk about don't be a shithead, I would turn into a terminal velocity asshole. Yeah. And I didn't give a shit about anything except I, I knew that if I ate, that feeling would go the way. And it was literally like being a drug addict who needed his heroin and hadn't had it for two days. And the yeah. only thing that would make it go away was to eat. And it was to eat as much of the worst food that you could possibly eat as fast as possible just to make that feeling stop. The fact that I have not felt like that for five years, if I could stay my weight and, 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 and never, or, and, and, uh, and, and have to feel like that, or if I had to put 25 pounds on and still never feel like that ever again, I'd, I'd take the 25 pounds. The fact that I never feel that way ever anymore, and to think now that I understand the biology of what your body's doing when you feel that way, yeah. that is probably one of the most unhealthy states a person can be in because you're in a, a hypoglycemic state. And it, it was paleo and paleo style eating because I'm not 100 percent that made that go away forever. Yeah, and nothing else ever did that for me. Not even like going like the Atkins route or anything. No, and that's what I found. I didn't realize I was uh, kind of following a primal paleo lifestyle because it wasn't real big when I was doing it, and I really didn't know much about it several, several years ago. And I had to tweak and fine-tune it and figure it out. But you're right, and that was probably the onset of type 2 diabetes kicking yeah, in. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. Yeah, and I had a, a partner I worked with in law enforcement, same thing, man. If he didn't eat, about every three hours, he, he couldn't function. I mean, yep. he was just, he couldn't think. He would get cranky. He'd get a severe headache. And I never had those conditions. I had more of a combination of the physical problems, but mine were more manifested in almost uh, different diseases, the multitude of diseases. And the allergy thing was huge for me because I'd always suffered from chronic seasonal allergies. And I mean bad, bad debilitating allergies to where I couldn't function at all. And I would have to take five, six allergy pills a day. I'd had allergy shots as a kid, and all of that went away. I was that was probably the biggest drastic change for me, is controlling the allergies, and that was obviously by controlling inflammation, and you know, obviously the reactions to the foods I was eating in my bloodstream, and having this physical reaction. Well, once I cut all that out and healed. Allergies went away. And I went, you know, that's that's yeah. interesting because I don't believe I ever really realized the effect of that. I was very pissed off when the government and, and your old boys decided yeah. that they would uh, put excessive regulation on anything with pseudofedrine in it mm -hmm. because they were going to stop meth production, which is yeah. done. It's done the square root of F all to stop meth production, by the yeah. way. But that was their 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 guys. Uh, Actifed was a very old pharmaceutical at that at that point. 
And I would get extremely congested several times a year from allergies. Not the level you're talking about, just where not only are you stuffed up, like your nose is dripping. It's like one of the most, you, you don't want to be out in public when you're like that. You can't breathe, yeah. you can't sleep, and ActiveFed was the only thing that worked for me, that, that literally cleared up those nasal passages like that. Oh, I used nasal spray, ActiFed, Sudafed, yeah, you name it. I, I'd gone through every allergy pill known to man. But when they, when they, when they, when they did that regulation, it was like, I bought the hell out of it because I knew it was like, there was not enough money in dealing with the crap for them to keep making it. Eventually they changed the formula and it wasn't the pseudoephedrine. There was some, and I can't remember the name of the, the drug, but it was something HCI that was uh -huh. the other piece of ActiFed. And yep. it was that with the pseudoephedrine that worked for me. And what I didn't realize until you were just talking about allergies is as pissed off as I was, I was still a fat guy back when that happened. <laughs> and I haven't given a shit about that for three to four years now. I, I never even really thought about because it, it wasn't chronic. Yeah. It was, uh, it was, it was you know symptomatic. It would come and go a couple times a year. And and I, I realize now that I haven't been like, damn, I wish I can get ActiFed forever. So that's that's like you take certain things for granted. I think when your entire body gets healthier. Oh, I had a whole drug cabinet full of allergy and sinus medications, <laughs> and I would have to. I went through all of them because my body would eventually adapt to that type of uh, over-the-counter and uh, uh, prescription as well. I'd oh, very get, good point. And I would get about four massive sinus infections a year that were just, I can't even explain how congested <laughs> and how bad I would feel. And I even had massive sinus surgery to kind of help clear it out so I could drain because um, everything was so inflamed in my nasal cavity. And, yeah, I, and now I don't even think about it. I mean, my nose is something I don't even think about. I use it to smell things, and that's yeah. about it. Yeah. So I don't yeah. – I pretty rarely sneeze. Um, you know, I don't get the bloodshot eyes. I used to be really severely allergic to cats. And if a cat was in a room or someone had a cat, I would, literally would – my whole face would swell up. My eyes would swell shut. And I can be around cats now, no problem. I mean, I, if I pet them and rub my eyes, obviously that will cause a problem, but – nothing like what it did before Absolutely. so yeah, I mean, that's why i try and tell people it's 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 this it's this process too it, it doesn't happen overnight it took about three years after i straightened out my diet to get to that where the allergies went away it wasn't yeah. just stop and not follow uh the path anymore because um, well, i've fallen off a couple times like you too you know i'll go out yeah. and on vacation for two weeks and sure enough getting stopped up you know my nose will start to react i'll start to get wheezing so yeah, it's it's a lifestyle, and that's what I teach. I teach a lifestyle. <laughs> my kryptonite is Thanksgiving and Christmas and the whole holiday. That that's where I go off the deep rails every year. But oh, you gotta live, you know. I mean, but like, w you know, what you said there is really important for people to understand when it comes to changing your life health wise. Like people say, three years. Wow. And I'm like, well, how many years did it take you to get this screwed up? Yeah. And yeah. I usually say it takes about one year of healthy living. To, to, to correct as much as possible every 10 years of screwing your life up. So if you've been screwing your life up for 30 years, then it's going to take you about three years to unravel that crap. And, and that's if you do it perfect. So some, like, because your method uses a lot of self-discovery. So yeah. some of the adjustments you make initially, you might go, well, that, that helped, that didn't. So it might take even a little longer as you fine tune your lifestyle and then how, how committed to it are you and what have you. But, all I know is that everybody that's gotten into this space from this audience has written me thank you email after thank you email uh, as though it's like I did it or something. I mean, it's just I know it works. It worked for me. 
uh, one of our, our, our really great community members, John Dowie, was uh-huh. over 300 pounds. He lost 90 pounds on, on the kind of a paleo primal world. Um, he's building bi- a business now, you know, in the permaculture space. Nice. And, and I mean, this guy has gone from looking really bad, really. I mean, he's a great guy, but he just had this, you could just tell he wasn't healthy to like, he's like a friggin' stud now, you know? And, you know, he's, he's an older guy like we are. He's not old, but he's, you know, middle aged guy. And that just shows you that anybody can do it. It's never too late. Get it, get going, you know? And, uh. Well, that's the thing I t- to take away from it is I don't just throw this out there. I mean, I've been into sports, exercise, and health for almost my entire life. From the point when I could join organized sports, I've been at it. You know, and then the investigative side opened up a whole nother world to me of everything that we were doing wrong and how, you know, the government and big industry influences to make us unhealthy instead of healthy. You know, once you kind of you get the big picture, you go, oh, okay, these grocery stores aren't here to help me eat. They're here to make me sick and diseased so the medical community can make a buttload of money. And then the government can take over healthcare, and then they can make more money off lobbyists, and it's this huge chain reaction. And once yes. I saw the inside of it, I was disgusted. I could not believe that, you know, it's just, I don't understand humans. We like to inflict as much pain on each other as we possibly can when we could actually live a really good, almost utopian lifestyle <laughs> if we just got out of our own damn way. Well, and this is what I find with people that generally move into this lifestyle. A lot of them stay urbanites at first. You know, maybe they get into CrossFit or something like that or whatever. But inevitably, as you start to eat, you know, a more meat-centric diet, you start to realize, okay, well, that only takes me so far because if I'm eating CAFO fattened beef that stood in its own crap up to its armpits, that's better but it's than, than eating a bunch of grain, but it's still not healthy so they start reaching out and they find local food. They start maybe raising some of their own food. They start growing some of their own food and they start to get nutrient dense and high quality food into their body. They start to actually taste food because it's better. It's higher quality. It's more nutrient dense. And like you were saying about with allergies, if you, if you're all stuffed up and you don't really taste food. So also they start to, to, to find that and then they kind of gravitate toward a whole lifestyle change. Yep. Even if like you're, plan sends people in that direction. But I find that people that whether they come to it through, you know, Wolf or Cordain or anybody else, they still seem to end up at least in that direction because it's a natural progression. And then you start some of us like really start to crave the independence and the whole primal lifestyle at a higher level and we start doing things like homesteading and farmsteading and that's really what i have you on to talk about today is your adventures in that we had you on last time we talked about it but i'm sure a lot's gone on so what's new with your off-grid project yeah well let me kind of go back a little bit of what you said in the evolution because i think that's important for people to understand too because what i do teach is that and it's i've gone through a journey myself but i'm a little bit different than most of the mainstreamers in the paleo community as i came from that Became urbanized, cityized, I guess, whatever you want to put. And then I'm trying to go back to my roots. You know, I'm trying to find my way back. I was always a libertarian. I never was. I was always kind of the oddball out when it came to politics and and how I thought of life. Everyone used to tell me, you live in Gary's world. Because I always thought differently than everyone else. I always thought, you know, why are we doing things this way? I used to question in the government all the time. I go, this is stupid. Why are we making it hard on ourselves? Why don't we make it easier and simpler 
And that, that whole philosophy kind of evolved into my primal power method program. It was like everything is based on simplicity. And I teach that. Everything I teach is very simple. My books are short, you know, 150 pages or less. And, you know, my blog posts don't run for five days. They're very short. I try and keep everything short and concise because that's how I live my life. And I think people benefit if you can keep it simple and straightforward for them and they have a better chance of success. But, yeah, with uh, that tied in, eventually I during I started probably about eight, nine years ago now looking for land. Um, I'd lived remotely uh, growing up and, you know, I always loved it. I loved growing up the way I did, uh, having the freedom and being able to walk out and just go out my front door and walk across the street and I could hunt literally right across the street from my house. I thought that was awesome. So I bought 20 acres. I finally found 20 acres in northeast Washington. I spent just looked everywhere. I mean, I, I traveled all over the country for work, so I was very fortunate in that sense. But then I started taking vacations in some of the areas where I wanted, where I was more interested in. And I just fell in love with Washington. I just did. Um, and one of the benefits, too, is there's no state income tax. So that helped <laughs> on a business model. Um, but it just worked out. So, yeah, I've, I'm in year two now. The first year was figuring out, you know, just what the heck am I doing? You know, I, I'm starting from scratch. I bought raw land. There's nothing there. Zero. I mean, nothing. I, I, the roads weren't even good. I had to fix the roads just to get in. And so I've got, uh, last, during, from last year to this year, I've gotten the well in. We built the roads up and, uh, I just finished septic and got the septic system in. And I'm doing a little differently too. Instead of most people think off the grid, um, they, you know, they think all the shows on Alaska and they think you just build a cabin and poop in a bucket or something, <laughs> you know, it, it looks great. Um, and I respect those people on those Alaskan shows. I mean, those guys are living the life. They are truly living it. But for most of us, I don't think that's a reality. I think, you know, you're somewhere in between there between, you know, modern society and the Alaska true off the grid living. I think most of us fit in the middle. So that's what I tried to approach it as I'm going to do it right and I'm not going to squat and just throw a, you know, a trailer up and try and dig a hole and do my own septic and do all that. I said, I'm going to do this right. I'm going to get it all, um, you know, get all of my permits, get everything done, get my owner occupancy certificate at the end. So I actually have a property that's not only an off the grid property, but it's a good investment because I should be able to sell it for much more than I put into it. So it, I looked at it as a whole encompassing piece. I want to get away, but I don't want to throw a bunch of money at something and then have nothing I can get out of it. No one's going to buy my shack, you know, perched up on four blocks. And, you know, it actually makes the land worth less when you do that. We talked about that last time. If you do it correctly, it actually turns into an investment. The downside is can't finance it. You got to pay cash. So that's a struggle. And that's what I'm dealing with right now. We're going to build the house and we're finalizing the plans, and then we're going to turn it in and get all of our permits. And it's it's a it's a, it's a bear. It's it's expensive. I'm not building a very big house. It's going to be in the eight nine hundred square foot range, and it's getting really expensive. It's far more expensive than I thought, and which is par for the course. I've had two other houses built over the years, and you know how it is. It always overruns. Cost always overruns. So I'm dealing with that right now. So the, any donations they want to send to my mail, I'm just kidding. 
you know, but I want to prove that, you know, normal. Build the house for Gary at PayPal.com. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, but I want to prove I'm trying to keep it within a rational point of, of funding. You know, I don't want it to go so far outside that people go, oh, that's just a dream. I can't do that. So my original plan was to keep it under 125,000 total project. Yeah. I'm probably looking closer now to 200. Okay. But that's that's everything. I mean, that's, that's the, the land, land. That's the water. You know, oh. yeah. It, that's building the house. That's that's turnkey. That's getting in. You know, storage shed, solar, everything. And well, you, and to be off grid, that's that's incredibly valuable as far as a budget because you're not going to have an electric bill every month, right? I mean. Mm-hmm. You know, I you're not going to have the electric bill in Washington State that, that I do in Texas, at least not in the the summertime anyway. But I've seen three hundred plus dollar electric bills come across the desk to be signed off on, and I oh, I'm not real happy about that. And that adds up over the years really really quick. Uh, so like that's one example of like, and when you're done with this, you don't owe anybody Jack Diddley squat either. That's the benefit, and that's why I want people to understand. And it's tough because I'm getting ready to launch a financial series with a financial consultant on uh, my blog and talking about financial freedom because what's one of the things that stresses us out the most in life? Finances. Sure. Yeah, and talk about how that affects your health. I mean, stress is a huge, huge detriment to your health. Uh, one of the main causes besides food, if you take out our bad uh, as far as how we eat today and how we exercise, well, the next one right behind it, not far behind stress. Yeah. So it's that financial freedom, too. But with that, you know, I can't finance it. So it's going to take me longer. So I yeah. can't just build the house this summer. I'm going to build part of it <laughs> until I run out of money. And then I have to come back the next summer and try and build as much as I can. It's probably going to take about three years. And that's not bad, though. When you look at a picture of going off the grid and going through everything, I think a, a rational way of looking at it is a three- to five-year plan. Because if you rush into this, and I've already met people who have gone, you know what, I've listened to you know podcasts on survivalism, you know, I'm in the paleo world, all this, I'm out. And they just jump off and take off, mm-hmm. you know, pack their stuff and leave. And they last about a year and they come back, you know, because they miss everything and they didn't plan. Well, and they, 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 they go to the extreme discomfort before they have the time to build the infrastructure for comfort. I mean, you were talking about like the guys that, that go out and do it and live it at the extreme. And there's a few things we should realize about that. One, sometimes people do that because they have to. Yeah. Two, when you watch it on TV, it will be sensationalized and may not be quite as rough as you've been led to believe it is because Believe it or not, TV networks don't exactly tell the truth on reality TV. Imagine that. You mean Bear Grylls doesn't do all that stuff? How yeah. Oh. And then there's this about three-pound mass that's mostly fat and water between your ears, and I believe it was a gift of your creation so that you could create certain things for yourself that are better than a bucket to crap in if, if you have the means to do so. So... I think we should be trying to build lifestyles that incorporate the, 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 the primitive reality of our evolution along with the, the true human potential of our minds and our creativity. That those two worlds not only can coexist, but should. Yeah, That's absolutely. the only way we can be completely human, is to realize our potential and not, not leave our roots behind. 
And I totally agree with that. And I think it makes the transition simpler. And uh, you were talking about the, the teeny home movement I heard on one of your podcasts. And I actually wrote an article right around that same time. I just put it out last week on uh, is a tiny home a good idea or a fad or a waste of money? And I firmly believe that movement is a waste of money. Um, oh, it was with Jill, um, her talking about her uh, travel trailer and living in a trailer. Yeah. And laughing about that. And it's totally true. And I point that out. I go, why would you pay, get a rolling chassis? You got to buy the rolling chassis. Then you got to build a glorified shed on it. Yeah. That's top heavy. And it's built out of wood. So it's yeah. a huge fire hazard. And then you're going to crap in a bucket in it. It has no plumbing. <laughs> and you're going to, you have to take it to your motor vehicles division and get it registered, get it inspected. Yeah. And it ends up costing 15 to 20 grand to build this crap box. For, for a low-end one, by the way. No, if you want yeah. to build one that, that's really nice and it's still small as hell, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000. I saw this. I can go out and buy a really kick-ass fifth-wheel motorhome. Brand new. Used, well, I was going to say used, and it's still in really great shape for $30,000. And the bank will finance that. I can walk right down to the bank and go, I want to buy this. Here's the blue book value of it. Here's my credit. Here's my application. Mr. Spearco, sign here. Here's your money. Go on with your life. Right? I got to do that with a tiny house. And that fifth wheel will outperform that so-called tiny house in every way. Now, for the people out there that want to live in a tiny house, I'm not crapping on your dream. (laughs) I'm really not. But I think that tiny houses on wheels are an attempt to get around government regulation where they say your house can only be so big. And I bet you'd agree with this. A 900-square-foot house probably isn't costing you any more than if you built a 400-square-foot house. No, In that's... totality, like the majority of the expenses, yeah, things that are, are, are going to have a trip charge, like a foundation. Yeah, it costs a little more for a bigger one, but it, it costs a lot for a little one and, and a little bit more for a bigger one and things like that. Yeah, and that's a good point. I think that's where the teeny home kind of revolution came from. Is it's like, hey, we're going to save you money, but on the back end, they're actually making four times the amount of money off you, five times. A teeny home, a teeny house, teeny home has two definitions. You have the ones that are on the rolling chassis, the little ones, which are to me, just go get a travel trailer. I bought my travel trailer for eighty five hundred bucks. Yep, and it's awesome. I just bought a new one in Spokane that was on sale. And I could finance it for ten years. That cost me sixteen nine, and it's brand spanking new. Wow! Yeah, and and uh, so I'm in the process of selling my other one. But I used my other one as a test bed. I want to make sure this was okay for me. Do so I, I want to really do this? Right? Yeah. How far do I want to push this? So I went and bought the cheaper version and one I could tow behind my six cylinder truck at the time. Mm-hmm. Now I have a V8. I upgraded because I'm going in the direction I want to go in. This is how wow I want to live my life. So now I'm going okay. I didn't dump all the money on the front end. I experimented and then moved on. But then the teeny home, the, actually the teeny home, other definition is a house under 500 square foot. Okay. So you look at that and you watch the shows on that one. It's on teeny home nation too. People are spending $500 a square foot for those houses. And I go, oh my God, <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah. And it's capitalizing on a fad. The house is no different than any other house out there, it's constructed the exact same way. They're just taking it going, oh, yeah, we'll create it small for you. But you know what? I don't build small homes normally. 
This is custom. This is yeah. special extra custom. Yeah, and we're going to use yeah. this, you know, cedar uh, cedar wood from from Brazil yeah. or beetle kill blue Colorado spruce and and make it high end. And I appreciate the because some of them you got to admit they're beautiful when they're done with them. They oh, really yeah, are. But it's still it's still difficult to. It's not like a fifth wheel RV that you back the truck up under and just drag where you want to go. They never tow well. They they always. I mean, every episode of that show I watch, there's a blown out tire or the trailer almost falls over. Yeah. And the people when they do the follow up, wherever they said they were going to put their thing, they're never there. When they do the follow up six months later, they're always somewhere else. And they're always, they, they try to spin it positive, but you always hear a lot of little bits of regret in there. Yep. And I, I like it because I think the engineering that goes into it. So like what I said to my wife is I was like, I would love to get one of these tiny house experts that cram so much efficiency into one of these little things and say, come into my 2,500 square foot house and fix my shit. <laughs> because if they would apply that ingeniousness to my home, you know, it could be, Fantastic. So I think going small gets the mind really, really creative. But I could live in one of those things for like a weekend or some shit. But I'm not spending my life in there. And then the people that drive me nuts, Gary, are the ones with like you know we have three kids and they're going to live in a 180 square feet or something. You're like, uh, yeah. Well, you won't. The one thing is you won't be having more kids. No, no. <laughs> yeah, and I, I look at that too. I think it's um. A lot of what people I'm seeing doing the teeny home on the rolling chat, you know, the toe behinds, those are, uh, those are kind of the hipster generation. Yeah. You know, it's something cool to do. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go spend what little money I have on this crappy box and I'm going to. Yeah, they're either hipsters or they're like recycled 60s hippies. Yeah. Yeah, they're right. It's this weird, yeah, this weird group. And you can tell that you go, this isn't the smartest bunch out there just because. They're spending so much money yeah. to do something that really isn't feasible. It just is. It's not practical. And if you could think it through, I mean, I looked at those houses when they first came out, and I looked into them, and I looked at the websites. I went, no, no, because I thought it would be cheaper than a travel trailer. That would sure. be the point, right? Yeah. If I'm going to do it, it needs to save me money. Or no. it would cost the same and be so much better. Yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. actually more expensive and way crappier. Yeah. And yeah, so travel trailers, especially right now, um, now that I'm go on my second one, is the market, if you look around and you do it correctly, my mom bought a 34-foot fifth wheel, and it's nice with all the pop-outs. I think it's like a 2006, but it was like the top model at the time. Yeah. It paid 17 grand for that thing. Yeah. I'm bumping around Craigslist while we're talking, and I'm looking at a, six, a 2006 Gulfstream, one owner. The pictures look immaculate. It looks like a brand new one. Um, and it's from a dealer and it's 10-9. Right? Yeah. I mean, you look at stuff like that. And I, I've had people that you talk to about this and they have like their little homestead place. They're, they're doing your thing, right? They're not living there yet. They want to put something there and they want to be able to go there and be comfortable while they build the rest of it up. And they're like, but I don't have a truck to tow something like that. I'm like, there's 400 Billy Bobs with F-350s like I own. You give them a couple hundred bucks, they'll drag your shit up and put it where you want it, and you're not moving it every day. That's the point of having it. Now, if you want it for camping, and then you need a vehicle that can tow it, but if you just wanted to get a, a, an RV to your your homestead area, your your bug out location, or your you know your your place where you're working, yeah, you hire somebody, pull the thing there, and 
frankly, I'd rather do it. Because I'll tell you the one thing I hated about I did own a travel trailer for a while, and I hated towing it. That's what I hated was not towing it on the windy country roads. I hated towing it on the freaking interstate in construction with vehicles on all sides of me and having a semi on one side of me that can kill me and somebody in a little bitty car that's an idiot, you know, right against my my back bumper with this trailer swaying and the wind being created by the 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 uh, the, uh, the the semi truck. So I yeah. hated towing it, so I'd rather pay somebody to put it where I want it anyway. Well, and that, that's, you bring up a really good point, and I went through that whole kind of debate in my mind. I went, okay, I don't want to tow something big. So what I did is I bought a 21-foot ultralight. And cool. Yeah, so I could get it behind my little truck. And those are really cool in the sense that I think mine's around, God, 3,000 pounds. It might be even less. It's okay. really light. And it's aluminum frame, so it's not the wood frame. My new one is a, a hybrid of the two, but I kept it short because I knew I didn't want a big behemoth behind me because I like traveling. I like getting in and going. And I knew I would have to drag it between San Diego and Washington for at least a couple years. Okay. So you so, were going to use it mobile. That's different. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I was, I bought it also to try and get to the property, but my roads, there's no way. I could, I would have to get a bulldozer to get it up there. And then I'd have to use the bulldozer to get it out. It would just tear the trailer to shreds. It would be very dangerous to do. And I said, you know what? There's actually, I found an RV park on the lake right below me. <laughs> right below me. Literally sure. right by my property. And it's two grand for six months to oh, live there. All utilities included. Yeah, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I went, all right. I'm not, you know, it all worked out in the end. But my new one's only 23 foot. So I went a little bit bigger with a – it's a newer, brand-new trailer with an open floor plan. It has this – the one I have right now is called a bunkhouse. So it has bunks in it. My other one just has the queen bed, and there's no other sleeping besides the couch will pop out. And so that's what you have to look at, too. You have to figure out with these travel trailers, there's 50 bazillion configurations. Yeah. I mean, you get into length and pop-outs and, you know, the inside far as where the kitchen is – where the bed is, how many beds, you, it just goes, it, it's forever. And there's um, there's probably at least 50 brands. I, I would say to me, the biggest thing I learned through my ownership of one is there is no such thing as too much counter space, but there's plenty of too little Yeah. when it comes to food prep and all. That's like one of the main activities that you have to do while you're living in a travel trailer is to prepare food. And ours had so little counter space, so we actually had like this this board that went in the sink and made the sink into part of the counter until you pulled it up to get back to the sink. And it seemed really great when we were looking at it and going, oh, well, that works. But then in practice, it it oh, wasn't it so great. No. So to me, it's like seating arrangements um, and 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 some counter space and you know the best bathroom you can you can manage with with it. And what's your what's your intent like? I could take a little bitty ultralight pop up or pop out camping and I'd be happy. But if I'm going to live in it for like weeks at a time, uh, -uh no. Yeah, you can't do it. No. Yeah. I looked at that at one point too and you're totally right. And that's where you have to find the balance too is that's why, uh, you know, I started off with this one and it is small. It's cramped. I mean, that's the problem is it's tight and. And it's just me and my dog, but even with just us in there, it's it's cram it's it's cramped up. The dog, my, he has to sleep underneath the the table, and you know it's it, it's too congested. And that's why I bought a little bigger one with a pop out and an open floor plan, and it changed the entire space. Yeah, but it's just a little bit bigger and a little bit heavier to tow around.
but like I said, I want to tow this thing. I want to be able to go to Wyoming, Montana, into Canada, and stay. You're stacking the function of it. Yeah, so I had to think the whole process through of what am I going to use this thing for. Where I would say this, if you were doing this remote build and the only thing you really wanted this thing for was a place to live while you were there, you'd probably get a bigger, heavy, and it was physically conceivable to put it on your property. You probably would have got something bigger Oh yeah, and had somebody drag it up there for you, set it up, and made it like a, a, a trailer house until your house was done. I would have got a fifth wheel, and yeah. I would have gotten a fifth wheel, and once I parked it, and that's the thing, too, is once you park it, if you get a good one, you know, if I'm not a fan of going out and get the beater trailers. No. Um, they're just, they're dangerous. They need a lot of work. They suck a lot of money to fix them up, and for a little bit extra, you can get a really nice one. I would leave it as a guest quarters and just leave it up there. It's a fifth wheel. That's true. Six. You know, you don't have to build an extra place, and, you know, the fifth wheels, if if people haven't been in them recently, they're nice. I mean, they're nicer than your house. Yeah. The yeah. insides of them. They have better cabinetry. They have better, you know, I, the bathroom, eh, that, that's a tough one. The bathroom's a bathroom in travel trailers. You know, the, 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 the back to the tiny house thing, I did finally see, like, a place where somebody built one and out of a container where it kind of made sense to me. And, and this yeah. is what, you know, the shipping container ones. This yeah. is what this person did. They were, this was in Australia too. They were basically homesteading a, a property and they lived in this tiny house, container house for like two years while they built their house. It wasn't macked out. They didn't have a lot of money into it. It had basin functionality. It was like a livable shed that happened to be inside a shipping container. And as soon as they built their house, they put it up for sale for somebody else to, to be able to do the same thing with. And when they put it up for sale, what they said is, you don't even have to worry about getting it where you want to go. We got a guy that'll deliver it to you within 200 miles, and the delivery charge is in the thing, and it's already ready to go. And this is what we did with it. You can do that with it too. That made sense to me. Well, and I'm 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 going to actually I've looked into it and actually priced them because there's a company out of Spokane that because uh, they come from West Washington and they bring them over. And I was going to say, gosh, I want to say it's around it's around two grand. Um, for the 40 foot, the yeah. 20 foot isn't much less, but they're great for storage. The downside on living in them is they put a lot of nasty things in those containers. They do suck, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you have to, you should actually sandblast them and actually clean them out just because there's so much chemicals that could be in the floor and on the walls and stuff that's saturated in there. That's a good point. Yeah, that's the downside. And if they repainted it, it all the off gassing, that you're going to get from the paint that they repainted it with is probably not going to be the healthiest. Sure. So th that's the downside of living in them. The people that I've seen who do it right, who really want to live in them, turn them into a, like a mini house. They yeah. blast them. They use a, you know, a, a low gassing paint, you know, a environmentally friendly paint. Then they two by four frame in the inside, turn it into a house, a little mini room and live in it. But that's a lot of work. Um, I do think they make good storage facilities, though. I mean, they're 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 bone tough for that, and they, you know, that's where like the price per square foot compared to a shed, um, they oh, they still awesome. shine even though the price has gone up on them. Well, they're hard to break into as well. Yeah, um, you know, if someone wants to get in, they basically have to use a cutting torch, and and they actually the companies will set them up to where the doors are set up heavy duty to where they're almost impossible to break into, um, especially if you're living remotely. I'm going to get one. I already have a, a, a pad, 
uh, that we put to side to where we're going to put one in down on the lower part of my property. Yeah. It'll probably be my work shed slash storage and anything, you know, valuable that I have to leave seasonally, you know, I'll probably put in there. And, uh, yeah, it's, it, it, it's an interesting life because I, I, where I'm at, it's, it's kind of in the snow belt. So to live there all year, don't know if that's me. Um, it would be hard to get in and out of. I'd probably have to snowmobile in and out because my last switchback is kind of steep. And I'm like, well, you know, that's where the travel trailer came in again. I went, well, you know, the whole point is to be, you know, have freedom and, and be able to do what I want and run my business anywhere. And, uh, and the place I actually work for another place now too. I had to get another job in order to pay for everything. Um, but they, they're, they're allowing me to do what I want to do. I negotiated mm-hmm. that here's how it's going to work. This is what I'm doing. So I was, uh, fortunate in that sense. But yeah, I mean, I plan to split the time. Uh, once it gets cold up there, I'm out. <laughs> you know, Hard to it. yeah. Why would I pr- punish myself in cold weather when I don't have to necessarily? I can get the travel trailer and take off and go somewhere warm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what are some of the other lessons you've learned so far in this project? Like, you know, things like this works really well or absolutely do not do this. Um, probably the biggest lesson I've learned is be real careful on the land you buy. Make sure you think it through. And what I did is I walked my property, uh, probably 10 acres of it before I even thought about buying it and walked around and saw everything. I knew the roads were rough, but I knew they were fixable. And just do your due diligence and make sure that the property is the property you want, that you fall in love with it. And I did with mine. I went, this is it. This is my property. Um, and some other lessons are, you know, get to know the locals. Make sure you make friends. Don't go up there and be a jackass and piss everyone off. Because the first thing that's going to happen is as soon as you put something valuable on your lot land, they're going to steal it or break it. Um, I was nice. I didn't have those issues, but I've heard of other people acting the fool and those things happening. And Because uh, you're, you're also going to need them to help you and get the right contractor, get the right subs. You know, uh, I met the guy who did my septic by he had to help me uh, get the drilling rig up with a dozer. He was the dozer guy. And we just started talking. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, my dad does does septic. I went, oh, no kidding. So that started that, and they do my road work for me now. Um, they do all my dirt work. So they referred me on to other people, and then my contractor, the first one I had, didn't work out. Another lesson I've learned in life, this isn't just from this one. If you get a bad feeling with your contractor, as soon as you get it, fire him. Do not play around with a contractor. There's a lot of bad ones out there. Mine wasn't necessarily bad. He was just the wrong guy for the job. And I stopped it right away and said, okay, this is not going to work. And with that, since I'd made nice with the locals and I'd been down to the, you know, the county and the permitting office, they referred me to someone else who has been fantastic. So it's one of those to where, you know, you just got to – you got to pay attention and, and do the right things and meet the community because that community is your community. You just can't go in there with a rogue attitude. I'm just going to do whatever the heck I want. I'm here to live remotely. I'm going to be an asshole. 
things are going to go very, very poorly for you, to say the least. And luckily for me, it's gone very smoothly because I met all the right people and did my due diligence and didn't rush into anything. Well, you know, I think a big point there is, okay, you just said they're your community, right? But yeah. you, but it's a pre-existing community. You're the new person. Yeah. You're the right? new guy. And you kind of like, I look at it this way. There's, there's two types of people that back when I was in sales and you go to like the chamber of commerce meetings and stuff like that. There's people that walk in, they keep their mouth shut for a while. They look around, they see what's going on. They start meeting people. They try to figure out how they can help people. And then they also say, in addition to how I can help you, I need some help and here's what I need. That's the right way. Then there's the people that walk into a chamber of commerce meeting. They've never been there before. They ignore all the pre-existing relationships and they just start mouthing off about how wonderful whatever it is they do is. Um, that and the fact that every time you kick a table, real estate agents and financial advisors crawl out from underneath it at a chamber meeting is one of the reasons I didn't like them. But yeah, a lot of people move into a community the same way. They come in and start telling other people how it should be, what they're going to do, etc. Instead of saying, hey, thanks for, for, for having me be part of what you guys are doing. What goes on here? Who does this? Who does that? Who can I give some business to? I mean, when you move into an area, if you want to make friends – you're probably going to need some things done, and there's people there that need business. Absolutely. Seeking who you can who can hire. That's that's an immediate in because people are like, well, yeah, nothing else. The guy's money's green, and that gives you the opportunity to let the the social side of the relationship form. Yeah, and that, that's a really good point. That um, I, I actually had too many contractors in the end because I put the word out and I said, hey, I'm looking for someone. I need someone to do this. Everyone found me, um, you know, and they said, hey, I heard you're looking for work and, and you want to make sure you keep it in the community, too. You you want to employ as many people locally. My neighbor's going to probably do my drywall for me. Um, he's a drywaller. So I said, hey, you know, you're in the a lot next to me. Well, you know, I'll just plan to have you do it. And, you know, and that's how it works. And that's, I think, for being outside, uh, being outside of a small community for so long where I grew up. You know, you forget about that. You start to forget that everything is a very interpersonal relationship. Everyone knows each other. Everyone knows your business. Everyone knows what you're doing. Everyone knows I'm building a house up there now. Everyone. <laughs> so the last thing you want to do is, like I said, just aggravate everyone and come across that way. And being from California, I mean, that was I had my work cut out for me. You know, Californians have a bad reputation of just moving into areas and just acting like jerks and screwing everything up. So I would always start with, well, I'm from California. Oh, but, 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 but. I in a small town. <laughs> I don't like Texas those people Texas. either, right? <laughs> you, you should know that in Texas. There's plenty of uh, us Californians out there causing all kinds of havoc. Mostly in like the North Dallas Richardson area and then the Austin area. The Californians seem to love Austin for love some it. reason. And, you know, we have this philosophy, as long as you can find your freaking urbanite hippie yuppie bullshit to your urbanite hippie bullshit neighborhoods, go nuts with it. Just don't try to spread it out to the rest of the state. Well, and they don't last. Um, <laughs> I, I got I, They told me multiple stories of people moving from, you know, California, Southern California, coming up there. They buy their 5,500-square-foot cabin, and as soon as it snows and the wife can't get to the mall or whatever – they pack their stuff up and leave. 
So they don't last. And that's why I mean, do your, do your research. And I think that's the best place to start with the travel trailer. Why I mean, you talked about so much is that's the starting point. Yeah. You know, figure out if this is for you and don't do anything permanent that you're going to regret. Well, I'd say take some vacations, man. Even if you're not doing it with a travel trailer, I mean, you know, stay at the Marriott if you want to, but go, go to these places and don't just go to like all the places the other tourists go. Go to their local stores. Go, go to the, you know, the local parks and stuff like that and, and see what life there is really all about. If you're religious, go to the church that matches your beliefs or whatever and experience it. And that is, I actually, I've gotten so many questions on my project, uh, from a lot of your listeners as well. Cause I do all of my YouTube videos. Um, that's another thing. I'm documenting the entire process. So I do all YouTube videos on it. I write blog posts. Um, I'm eventually going to turn everything into a book and write a book on how I did this basically from scratch to finish. Um, but yeah, you have to go to the area and that's what I talk about. I go, just pick four or five places where you think that you want to go to live this type of lifestyle and then go vacation there, visit them. And that's what I did. I spent probably, God, well over a month and a half in the Spokane area before in different vacation pieces. And I'd spent numerous vacations in Washington over the last decade. So I knew the area pretty well, but I didn't know it all by any stretch. And the area I lived in was one of the last areas that I explored that I was most unfamiliar with. It's above Spokane. And, but once I did that and I got in a rental car and I zigzagged the entire northeast quadrant of the state, I, I put thousands of miles on that car in like nine days. But what it did for me is it gave me the lay of the land. I got to meet – I stopped in every small town and talked to the people in the small towns. And it gave me a good grasp of where I wanted to live. And it told me you know, that and I had options. I didn't just have one place. I think I narrowed it down to like three or four places that were all good. They were all fine to live in. I just got found the lot that I wanted in this area. It didn't rule out that I couldn't have lived in the other areas. They were just as good. It just so happened that the lot fell in this area. So yeah, it's it's vacation and figure it out because you could really screw your life up by packing everything up, selling your house and going somewhere and not knowing what the heck is going on. Because then now you got a problem. If it doesn't work out, now what? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that it's much easier to write off a vacation than a life decision, right? A vacation is a, a, a wasted week, right? Um, when you buy a property, even if you bought smart and you can sell it, it's an extreme disruption to your life if it was the wrong choice. And it, it's it's a difficult thing to like, especially a lot of people aren't going to do what you're doing. They they might do the remote thing, but they want to do it for just long enough to get everything ready, and then they want to go there. Well, imagine spending five years of your life doing that, and by the time you get to go there, you realize it was a big mistake. And I think that one of the biggest mistakes I've seen people make, and especially people that are planning a permanent living situation on a new property is going too remote, too far away from other yeah. people. It sounds like a great idea, but you know, like, and I would probably be more remote than I am if it was just me with my wife. Some of the properties we looked at, I went, you know, this is fantastic for me. And she was like, Oh, this is great. I'm like, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I can see you being happy here for about 90 days. 
and yeah. about day 91 really not being happy with this. And I think that's the other thing. Like, so one thing you have is like an advantage is since it's just you, you don't have to take that into consideration. So you build this lifestyle. If you meet someone, they have to fit it. Many people already have that significant other or they have kids. And at that point, you have to take the needs, the wants, the desires, the happiness of the rest of the family into the equation. Yeah, and I knew mine was pretty. Mine was on the edge of my comfort zone, far as remoteness. But it's not that remote. I mean, people look at it and it looks really remote. But I've got neighbors. Um, there's a there's a highway down the road from me. Um, I'm not that remote. I'm about ten minutes, ten miles from the my little town that I'm attached to. So I, I took that into consideration too. I went, what happens if you know I meet. Uh, my glorious woman wearing camouflage and has an M4, you know, walking <laughs> through the woods, you know, and we have kids. I went, I, this has to be practical, too. Mm -hmm. And that's why I looked at it, too, as an investment, uh, that if it doesn't go well, I have an exit strategy. I've learned that in life, too, as I've screwed myself on my last property by not having a good exit strategy. And that's why I looked at this and everyone tells me to go, Oh no, you build it. I talked to the real estate agent, the local real estate agent. And I said, Hey, if I build this here, I'm not going to lose money correctly. And I, I correct. And I showed everything to her. And she goes, Oh no, you'll do fine. And I talked to a couple other people, the builder, everyone's all no, you'll, you'll do okay. You'll be able to get rid of this property. And that's another thing you might want to look at too, is if it if it doesn't work out, is this property sellable? Cause you yeah. can go remote, and your clientele may be three people, you know, in three separate states around you that might be interested. Yeah, you know, when people talk about that aspect of things, it always makes me think of every place where that applies. And all the people sounding off back when we went to war with Iraq, for instance, going, we have no exit strategy. And it's like, it's not that I disagree with you. It's just that it's ironic that you're saying that because I'm looking at your life and I don't see any exit strategies for any of the many things in your life that you might need to exit. So we know intrinsically, that's why when we see government doing something really stupid, like an open-ended war with no clear victory line, that it's dumb. But then people turn right around and they do it. They buy a house under what they call the bigger sucker viewpoint, which means there'll always be somebody that's a bigger sucker than you. Yeah. And boy, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you how that's changed in the last 10 years I remember when I bought my first house. It was not a big house, but it was a nice first house. It was $84,250. And I remember the appraisal coming in, son of a gun, at exactly $84,250. Remember those days. Right? And it, whatever, it, whatever it went for sale for, somehow it appraised at that. And I remember my real estate agent saying, you have to request your own rep appraisal. I can't tell you who to call, but here's a list of appraisers in the area, and there's Three stars here. And these are three people that you might want to call, right? Well, all of those guys had to fix it, right? Oh. Now, when you go to buy a property and you're applying for financing anyway, and fi you got to think about the financing side when you're, when you're buying property as, as a resellable thing too, it doesn't work that way. You request an appraisal. Actually, your, your financer requests an appraisal, and there's like a pool. And an appraiser is randomly selected out of the pool that doesn't give hide nor hair nor shit about you, the property, or whose feelings get hurt. And they do a completely agnostic appraisal. And, and this is the big part when it comes to dumping a property that you're trying to sell to somebody that has to finance. If that appraiser happens to blow the appraisal, you can't just get it appraised again. 
Nope. Yeah. The property has to be delisted for 60 days, relisted, then you got to get another offer, then it has to get reappraised. The, but what do you think the first thing is, Gary, that the new appraiser is going to do? Well, yeah, he's going to look at the old appraisal. Appraisal, and he's very it. careful yeah. to not change it very much because if he oh, goes too high, he could lose his plot in the pool. And, you know, that works for me and against me. I had a house that underappraised, that I had to bite the bullet and just say, I'll take your offer. And I had this house underappraised, so the seller had to bite the bullet, and I got the, the benefit of that. And that brings me to another thing with looking for property, houses, whatever. Real estate agents are a unique group of people, and I'm sure there's some fantastic ones. And, and I've met one that I've done business with, and the rest of them have been, well, yeah. the square root of useless. I mean, yeah. the last two, one to sell the property I had in Arkansas, one to buy the one here, I literally at the negotiation stages had to do their jobs for them and say, I'm going to send you an email and tell you what to say. And if you don't want to say it, forward it to the other agent and say, this is what my client has to say which is what both of them did because neither one of them was willing and had the spine to do it. And both both times, we got exactly what we wanted from the deal. But neither one of them even knew to do it. No. And one was supposed to be really good. One was actually a referral from the guy I leased my office from in Arkansas. They were the biggest real estate agency in Hot Springs. And she was fine up until the point that we had offers. Some of the offers were like, we got this offer that was like, $30,000 under on like an $80,000 house. $30,000 under and half a million bucks. Yeah, it's a serious offer. This was like, this is, she's like, well, we need to counter with something. I said, counter with telling them to F off. That's what you yeah, counter with. I'm, I'm not even entertaining that. And what was funny enough is those were the people that came back and made a serious offer about the house. Real estate agents are hard to find though that are good. Yeah, especially in remote properties buying land. I struggled. I got I got completely lucky. Um, I went to the local bank and asked the VP of the bank if she knew any because I had to fire my first real estate agent because he was such an absolute doofus and retard. And I mean, I'm being nice. Yeah. In how I'm describing this guy. I mean, if it wasn't for the fact that breathing was a natural function, he wouldn't figure it out. <laughs> I mean, unbelievable. And. I got this guy who just so happened to be from the area where I was looking at, and we found the property the next day. Huh. But it was luck and doing my due diligence again, though, of going to the right place and trying to find. And that's what makes it even more difficult is you're going to have to deal with a real estate agent to find a remote property. So now you're even you're in a place that you don't know anything about, and then you're dealing with a real estate agent. It's kind of a recipe for disaster if you don't plan it. And I don't. Yeah, it's funny you say that. That I, a lot of stuff in I do in life, I don't have an exit strategy. I just call it planned flying by the seat of my pants. Because <laughs> I do. I just. It's just me, and my attitude is I'll figure it out. If it yeah. goes wrong, you know, I'm a normal functional human being. I can figure it out. You know, if it goes to crap, I'll work my way out of it. Um, but yeah, with this, I've just learned that it's very, very risky and. It, it is an investment in land. People don't know either is land is a different financial transaction. You know, you can't finance land for 30 years. Well, and that's where I'll do a little bit of defense of the real estate agents that are asked to find you a piece of land. 
they first of all have to believe you have the money to make the, the buy because they know you can't finance it often. Sometimes yeah. you can finance land, but it is more difficult. Uh, then they, they they're not selling you a home; they're they're selling you a piece of dirt. It's gonna it's gonna be for less money. If you want to buy a thousand acres, they're interested. You want to buy ten, uh, you know. Um, it, you're talking maybe a, a you know anywhere between a, a ten and hundred thousand dollar transaction at that kind of high end, uh, but a lot of people will find a nice piece of land for twenty thirty thousand bucks. And what's you know if the guy has to split the commission with another agent, what's three percent of that? Where he can go down to the suburbs and sell McMansion after McMansion, and when the guy wants to see four houses, he can show him four houses in an hour and a half. It's it's hard. I mean, it's hard looking. So you know, it's hard for the agent. Like that was the one reason. Like I didn't fire this 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 pinhead right at the end and let her have the sale, is because she, to, to be fair, she did run all over the place with us to look at these properties, and it's it's not the same. And I can understand why real estate agents like to specialize in a couple neighborhoods and sell the school district in the trendy yeah. neighborhood. I, I get that. I do too. You know, and with that though, uh, um, but that's not my problem. With yeah, that, right. That's the other side. Dogs barking there. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, with the land too, is it's better to buy cash. Um, this, I wasn't a rookie. I actually owned six other lots in New Mexico still. And I, I bought and sold a couple others that I've owned. And so I knew, I knew the land business. I wasn't a total amateur, so I understood how it worked. But for an outsider who is financed just a typical home or never even bought a home, it's very, very different. And people who specialize in land, are very far and few in between. Just like you said, there's not a ton of money in it. You know, it's usually they sell residential property and then they also sell land because it's a remote area. They're forced into listing land. Um, so they're not really into it for the most part. My guy, like I said, I just got lucky with that. But that's where, you know, I looked at a lot of lots on my own too. I just had the first real estate agent print me out a list and I said, I'll go look at them. They were all garbage. But at least I got to see him, and I didn't have to tra track around with him all day long. I could go up there, spend five minutes, go, okay, this sucks, yeah, and walk away instead of having him in my ear going, well, Gary, you're not seeing the potential. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know what I mean? It's only going to cost you 150 grand to level the top of this mountain. Oh, yeah. the water? Don't worry about that, Gary. You can truck your water in. You just haul it in. You know, they start putting these ideas in your head. Yeah, they do it with houses a lot too. They'll be like, "See, all you got to do is take this wall down." I'm like, "So you're an architect? You can tell me whether this wall is load bearing or not?" Well, yeah. No, but it probably isn't. Well, I'm looking at it and I'll tell you it is, right? And I'm not an architect, but I know that's a load bearing wall, and I know what you're saying could be done. There's going to be about seven thousand dollars worth of work above there to to make it work with beam work. So no, and it, you know, I'm not looking for a house so I can tear a wall down. Right there's there's thousands of houses on the market. I'm looking what I can move into and live in. Yeah. And I, well, by the way, we're at the top of my budget here, and you're talking about removing walls, and I haven't even seen but you know 10 of the house. They do. You're right. They do stuff like that. They try to make you picture what it could be. Well, yeah. Which I'll is do that on my own, man. Money. That's what it always equates to. It's going to cost you a bunch of money. And yeah, you're right. I I've looked for houses where I could knock down walls, and I said. I want the crappiest house in the nicest neighborhood you can find me as an. Then investor. we're talking. Now we're talking, and I've done that before too. And uh, you're right, but every time I bought a house that I'm living in and plan to live in, it's like I'm not knocking down walls. I'm not doing much of anything. 
I want to move into it and let this be as stress-free as possible. And yeah, it's, uh, yeah, well, and to answer some questions, I have one question I have gotten from a few people is they ask me to go, Gary, um, you're single, right? Why are you doing all this? I mean, why are you, you seem like you're like prepping and you're preparing and doing all this stuff. And why would you do that? You don't have, you know, you're not leaving anything to your kids. You don't have kids and you know, you're, you, you know, they just go, I don't get it. And I go, it's about freedom. That's the whole point. And I've heard you talk about that too, is I'm not prepping for anything. I want more freedom. That's the yeah. first point. Now, the secondary prepping in behind it and, you know, if something happens, well, yeah, that's a part of it, but it's not my primary focus. The reason why I want my remote property is so I can get away and relax sure, and live a life that I want to live away from as many government constraints as I can get away from. You're never going to get away from all of them. And I think that's another thing. People think once you move remotely that you don't have to deal with the government anymore. Well, guess again. You're going to have to, and they're going to know you're there. <laughs> so you're still going to have to play by some of the rules. Um, yeah. It's just there's less of them. It, you know, you can get away with a lot more far as just freedom. And, you know, I, I'm not worried about, you know, them monitoring my well, which they're starting to do in California. And I've talked to some of the ranchers that literally have had wells on their property for 30 years, and they just passed in one county. They're going to be putting up a monitor on it and charging them per gallon of what they're pumping out of their own privately owned well. Yeah, that's while they while they send several trillion gallons of perfectly good fresh water into the ocean every year. Oh, and that's why I'm leaving here. Um, And a lot of my friends now understand it took this crisis. And the irony is, is house prices are coming up close to the boom again in price. Uh Oh, it's crazy. I mean, yeah. I'm seeing prices of houses again. I go, we did not learn our lesson. No, oh, it's happening. I'm actually really concerned about Texas, honestly, because we did so well during the recession that a, a little bit of recovery here is having an, a, a really big effect. And I'm starting to see property get really expensive here. Oh, no. And I'm seeing the population really grow and the job growth and all the things that people are happy about. You just look at it and go, but see, there's always the end to this. And 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 the, the real reason that I think that this economy has been so stable down here is, yeah, smart practices like no income tax at the state level. That certainly helps, et cetera. But it's been that we've never had a meteoric type of economy in Texas. It's never been like full-on boom. It's just been steady. Yep. And with the oil and gas boom and then with the technology boom and major corporations coming here, it all sounds good, but we're having a true boom in this economy, and booms inevitably lead to busts. So... Yep. I'm kind of on the standpoint now where if you were coming here, I wouldn't tell you don't buy a house. But if you're looking for an investment property, give it four or five years. There might be some real good deals out there. But that's another thing, too, you have to be careful with when you're buying property versus housing. When the market tanked, and it did tank here a little bit, nowhere near as bad as it did in the rest of the country, but houses became good deals. Land yeah. didn't. Land didn't tank. And I think it's because most of the people holding land don't have to sell it. They want to sell it. And that's totally different. And if, when you want to sell something that you don't have to, you'll hold on your price a hell of a lot longer than someone that's like, well, I already bought another house and I'm going to have two mortgages. That guy's going to sell. 
Well, yeah, and that's because most people buy land with cash, and all they pay is a small property tax every year, and that's it. So they really don't need to get rid of it. Um, and land is, yeah, it's an interesting an interesting animal, and that's where you start usually. You can buy remotely and buy something that's already set up, and I looked for that. I looked for, you know, the traditional log cabin, but, man, it was rough because everyone I looked at needed a lot of work. And they were run down, they were 30, 40 years old, and they'd never uh, done an upgrade. And that's where, you know, but I could finance it. The upside to that is you can finance that property. Or if you have power run to the property, you can get a construction loan and finance it. It's 80 grand to get power run to my property. I'm not going to do that. No. I'm not rolling that into my loan. That is just stupidity. So, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting here in California, though. People are picking up on what I'm doing, and they're all, God, he was a little ahead of ahead of everyone <laughs> on his thinking. And But I saw it coming. I mean, the drought crisis here is is basically self-perpetuated by our, our lovely moonbeam government of Jerry Brown and all the idiots before him. And I always tell people, I go, you can't tax the solution once it's done. You can only continue to tax the problem. Yeah. And you keep this. We went through a drought in the early 90s. We went through the same crap. And we've had all this time, and we didn't fix anything. No. Dump all of our water into the ocean for the most part. We don't capture any of it. And California, the whole west side is coastline. Yeah. Telling me we can't figure out water. This planet is 71% surface area of water. And we're crying about a drought that's going to ruin everything. No, it's a scare tactic. Well, and here's how I feel about this whole drought thing. There's no doubt that it's it, it, there's been less rain than typical uh, oh, yeah. the last five years. That's that's fine. But a a lake that a man made and then drained is not horrific proof of a drought. It's proof of a man's inability to manage a resource. And so I saw a recent story about one town. I don't remember the name of it. One town in California that apparently doesn't have its head jammed up its ass and is putting in a huge cistern-based system that will capture enough rainwater to do everything the town needs to do, even with their low rainfall. Yeah. And there's no reason that couldn't be done everywhere. There's no reason the L.A. River, which is a ditch, <laughs> couldn't actually be a water harvesting system whether, rather than a water shedding system. Well, that's the problem here, though, is California is a perfect example of just gone off the rails. I mean politics and the cost of living here go hand in hand. I mean, they always say it's a sunshine tax. No, it's the idiot tax. <laughs> I mean, between our broken city governments, our county governments, everyone has your has their hand in your pocket. I, I live in a, a RV park right now, and this is going to floor people. I've, there's not a whole, whole lot of them around here that mm -hmm. are within the area that I need to commute. It costs me $1,000 a month to live in the smallest space they have in the cheapest RV park in not the best area of San Diego by any stretch. A thousand dollars. For the average family to live here and buy a house, you might find something under 500,000. You might, but it's not going to be all that nice and it's not going to have a good school district and you're going to have to dump a bunch of money into it. And you're probably going to have to bring in Six figures to live paycheck to paycheck here on average. To me, that's. To live paycheck to paycheck. And I mean, yeah. what you've just described without going to the place that you might get shot on your way out of your trailer, um, 
in Texas and to rent a, a really nice lot in a really pretty, you know, RV park with a lake and some ducks swimming around and stuff like that, it'd be about $250 a month. Yeah. And that's, yeah. you know, with like a nice laundry facility and you I mean, utilities included and what have you. And if you went to like the cheap low end stuff, I mean, you, you 100, 150 bucks a month. Oh, it's, it's insane here. It's like that, uh, the RV park I found by my place for two grand for basically six months. All utilities, uh, it doesn't have cable and internet, but that's, it's remote. Um, yeah. But, which is why it does it. If it wasn't, it probably would include it for that price. Yeah, and it's there. Me and the guy have talked about it. The fiber optic cable is actually there. Yeah. Um, it's just whether it's efficient to hook it up for the 15 spots that are there. Yeah, it's a, it's a, a head-down issue. Is it worth the headache and having to deal with it? But, yeah, here, that's why, again, why I came to the travel trailer, too, of one that I can drive around and take places is the odds of me coming back here at a certain point are slim to none except for to visit my family. Mm. Um, it is, it is so hard to live here and dealing with the, it, it's a weird culture. I mean, I grew up in a tiny town here. I grew up, like I said, a redneck in the sticks. So I'm not a city guy by per, per se. And just, so you're not a redneck either. You're just convinced you're a redneck because all of the people in LA think all normal people are rednecks. Oh, yeah. That, that's what it comes down to, you know. I mean, yeah. when we were out at Permaculture Voices, there was uh, the Purple Breather contingent of permaculturists, as I call them. And I could hear myself and this guy, Mike, that comments on the blog all the time, kind of throwing some snide comments out about the South, you know, and backwoods and stuff like that. And I'm thinking, all these people are talking about is sustainability, and where I live is a hell of a lot more sustainable than this. I mean, oh. you, and then we were in San Diego. You want the epitome of unsustainable. You, oh, yeah. you put a few million people into a small concentrated area in the middle of a desert and <laughs> yeah, and then call it a drought. No, there's too many people yeah. living in a desert, dummy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we don't zero-scape here. We're just starting to do that now. And I've always thought, I go, this is desert. I grew up in the high desert. Yeah. You know, and L.A. drained what water we had. Well, yeah, there's HOAs everywhere that say you can't do it. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. If you try and do it, you'll be fined heavily and eventually probably have your property taken away from you through the HOA. Unbelievable. It, yeah, no, it, it's it's crazy here, and it's sad because as you were here, I missed you. I feel bad, but the Natural Food Expo was the same weekend as Permaculture Voices. So I was up in uh, Anaheim, or not Anaheim, uh, but yeah, I was in Anaheim. It's in Anaheim in L.A., and uh, yeah, trust me, I would have much rather have been at the permaculture voices conference than that but um you get you're gonna have to talk to him not to schedule it on the same weekend for me from here on well, out i'm trying to get him to schedule it not in california so don't worry he, about that first but uh he should move it i i, I truly believe that as well because you guys were at the convention center area oh no you were in uh we were at the the, the hotel was right at the airport it was either ramada or hyatt or something like yeah. that it was a beautiful hotel But, yeah. I mean, they did things to him that were just unbelievable to me. Like, they eventually, like, all of a sudden we started having, like, these hors d'oeuvres out at the, the conference and the, at the, like, the speaker common areas and stuff. And I'm like, this is nice, but I don't think he promised this. And when I talked to Diego, he's like, yeah, the hotel said that we had not spent enough on hospitality services. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, wait a minute. We got a conference with 600 plus people here. We have the bar stacked to the gills every evening. 
there's probably a couple hundred thousand dollars been spent at the bar alone. We have all these people paying for rooms, buying food here at the restaurants. You know, the, 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 the amount of money that went into that, to that hotel because of this conference was insane. And they're like, but you didn't spend enough on food. Because, and, and they based it on how much he had spent on the other services. You spent so much money on this that you're required to spend more money on these other things. Welcome to Southern California. I, That's what I mean. They get you every which direction. You can. And I'm like, you, you know what, dude? I know that Dallas is not known for being like sustainable ag ground zero. But if you brought that thing here, I could have 15 hotels kicking each other's ass to get you to run the event at their hotel in about 15 minutes, one minute each for a phone call. And just give them, this is what we're going to be doing, this is how many people, this is our venue, this is our requirements, uh, you're bidding on this against these other hotels on this list. And, and they would beg you to come here. Yeah, yeah, well, and if he does, uh, if he keeps it in Cal Southern California, I probably will not attend. I attended the one in Temecula. Yeah. But, yeah, for me to pay that kind of money, and it's not expensive, but it's expensive when I'm here because people think, but I'm here. I don't even get a vacation out of it. Yeah. You know, I'd rather go somewhere else. So, yeah, has he contemplated possibly? I don't know. He's talking about moving it. I don't think he's too solid on Dallas. He's worried about, like, how much can you bring in out of the local market and all. And the, the honest answer is not that much except, well, I could probably help him with that just on the presence I have here. But, you know, he this is not – Dallas-Fort Worth is not a permaculture metroplex. It's not. No. no. Austin Austin kind of is, you know. Um, but I've also kind of talked to him about leaning more toward the restoration, agriculture, sustainable ag, you know, the homesteading side of things, mm -hmm. not maybe making it all, even though it all is permaculture, don't make it all about permaculture and only play to that vertical because I think that it's a much broader market If you're just trying to get anybody that wants to learn how to produce their own food, run a business, et cetera, and I think that's a much bigger market. And I I love permaculture. I don't want anybody to take this the wrong way, but there is a segment within that segment that's all about political bullshit, drainbow hippie crap, everything <laughs> should be free, and, and they're the loudest complainers that do the least amount of work. Now, there's a bunch of the hippies in there that are like hippies that bust their ass and get stuff done. I like hippies like that. It's yeah. that's what I call them the drainbow hippies, right? So you know the rainbow thing, but they drain everybody else's rainbow. Yeah. Right? And 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 I I think when you're worried about trying to attract the local permaculture market, I know we're way off topic here, but I think that's a big piece of what you end up getting is those people, and they're not, they're not necessarily beneficial in any way to anybody for a conference. Now I don't have anything to say about them bad as human beings, but they always figure out how to come for free. <laughs> Then they always bitch that they didn't get more. Uh, and then there's a cost to serve them, and there's no profit off of doing so. And let's face it, Diego's not doing this, you know, just to do good things. He's also doing it to earn a living. Yeah, it's a business. It's a business, and yeah. a business has to make money, or it's not a business. I remember Mark Shepard said out there about, you know, setting up 501c3 not-for-profit charity groups in the space. He said, yeah, you better build a profitable enterprise first. Yep. Then you build a, a 501. And then you take the surplus profits you don't want to pay taxes on, you donate it to your own 501, and then you distribute it that way. Otherwise, all you've created is a professional begging company. That's, and that's, like half the people went up on their feet cheering, and the other half of the people were like, oh, my God, I can't believe he said that. Well, well and it, it, does, it does relate, though, because that conference, I think the way the people I saw, either they're living 
kind of the more simple remote lifestyle or they're trying to. Yeah. So it does really tie together because I saw a lot of people like that. Yeah. And, I, you know, that might be a nice transition for him, too, is to talk about possibly homes, not just homesteading, but more of an off the grid, maybe yeah. simple lifestyle and kind of integrate it into the pieces because permaculture definitely fits into my model. Yeah. How to buy land, how to how, how to build up a, a house, how to, you know, we had one of the best sessions out there and there was a lot of squirming of uncomfortable young people that had been bitching about land access that went to this session. And you could see the ones that were there uh, was Grant Schultz and the, I can't think of the other guy's name, but they were talking about they both have like, you know, like 160 acre properties. They're planting, you know, 30,000 trees a year. They're running cattle. They're running pork. They're running chickens. They're making viable incomes off of their property and they both have houses now well how did they do it they bought a house one of them built a tiny house it was basically a shed it was like you were talking about in alaska but in i think in the indiana or illinois somewhere where the summers get pretty hot okay. <laughs> with no air conditioning okay. and lived in that for two years while they built the house and saved them enough money to do it and made enough money off the farm to pay for the house and and i think it was grant where his wife sewed the material, and he cut the poles, and they built a yurt for $2,000, and they lived in the yurt for like two and a half years. And you could see the squirming going on, and you could see Grant pick up, up and he goes, finally, well, do you want it or not? Yeah. Do you yeah. want this, or do you want to complain about why you can't have it? You don't have to sacrifice this much to get it. But you can get it much quicker if you will. And by the way, while we're living in all these situations, they were actually having to run a farm and produce a profit at the same time and build a house. It's not easy, but if I can do it, if he can do it, then you guys can do it too. And you can see him getting through to some people, and you can get to see some people that just had this kind of look like, but somebody should give me land because I would do good things with it. And that's yeah. like... I'm going to be the good steward. I'm going to yeah. I'm going to be no. And then there were people saying like, okay, you want to get into this? Go out and lease land. Yeah, earn it. Make some money off of it. Use that money to buy land. And there's a, a, a hundred different ways to do this. And I think that's the bigger piece to like the homesteading, farmsteading, permaculture pie is <clears throat> don't try to do it the way somebody else did. I bought a house with three acres, not thirty, not three hundred, whatever. I have a small farmstead. And I have a house, and I get to live here, and I run my business from here, and that worked for me because of the business model I was following. Yeah. If that doesn't work for you, don't do that. Grant went out, bought 200 acres of beautiful, you know, Midwest pasture, and he's turning it into Silbo pasture. And he lived in a tent for two years to do it. By the way, breaking the law when he went to get the permit to build the house, he was told you're you're in violation of law by living in a tent on your own property. Yep. And he's like out in the middle of farm country, he's just stupid, and he just continued to do it anyway. He like moved the tent to where the inspector for the building couldn't see it. And since it wasn't plugged in anything, it didn't matter where it was. I thought of doing that myself. Yeah, you know, so like there's so like that worked for him. But, it, it, you know, if, if your wife is instead of like Grant's wife, somebody that would sew a yurt, the, the kind of it's like, ew, a bug, then that's not going to work for you. So you have to figure out if you want an independent life, like what does work for you and for your family. Yeah, and how to do it. And I think you're right. I think a lot of people are looking, especially kind of the younger group is because they're into that instant gratification, you know, give me what I want now, that it, it folds into the entrepreneur mindset as well because I think they all go together. If you're going to live remotely, well, you're going to have to be an entrepreneur of some sort. How are you going to pay for it? Yeah. And it takes time. I mean, I learned that in my business. You know, it's 
as you have in yours, obviously, you started yours a long time ago, that those first three, five years are brutal. They're absolutely brutal. And that's why nine out of 10 new businesses fail is it's a lot of hard. It's a heck of a lot harder than punching a clock and sitting in a cubicle all day. But in the end that you're, you're going for the end game. That's what you're looking for. And you know what? Your first entrepreneurial set out may not work. It may crash and burn, you know, but at least you did it. And, and I think if you do that and kind of, that's the whole thing of the planning. If you don't plan for this, you're going to get screwed. I mean, I, I've heard some of the people who want to just start a farm and get out there, and they do. They want to get the land for free. They want to make an instant profit. And I'm scratching my head going, you know, if everyone could come up with a business on their own and make a profit within the first 12 months, pretty much all of America would be entrepreneurs right now. You know, if it was that easy. I mean, the odds of you making a profit in the first 12 months doing anything – that you know, starting your own business is slim to none. Matter of fact, I don't know if I found anyone who became profitable in the first twelve months and was able to live off it. Live off it's different. I think profitable can be profitable. done. I think a lot of people in, in, in ag are doing it right now if they're doing you know the pastured pork, pastured chicken thing because um, they can lease land for next to nothing. You can do very portable infrastructure. You can make some money in six months. Um, yeah, but you're not going to get paid for six months. No, and, and you're subject to a lot of risk during that six months. And you're going to work really hard during that six months. And then by the time you get that chunk of cash at the end of it, the government gets their piece. You have, you know, financing maybe on a few of the, the, the items to pay off and you kind of now have enough money to live on for another four to six months. You got to do it again. And, yep. and, and you could slowly, and then, then you build a market and then you start having the ability. Then you, you know, you do that for a couple of years in this path. And you file two years of Schedule F's, which is the, the farm part of the tax return, and then you can go get an ag loan, right? So that's another path. And that's like there's so many different paths. Uh, and some is you just bust your ass for two or three years, put in enough sweat equity, work a job while you're doing it until the business starts to generate enough revenue to not only augment but replace your, your income. And there's there's a hundred different permeations of that. Yeah, and I, I think that's a very good point, too, is that don't quit your job. Right away. No. And, and you always, because we always have this, you know, big idea of just pure freedom right off the bat. But you're not going to just separate yourself from the way you're living right now right away. And that's what I've learned as well is, you know, I thought, oh, you know, may, I can make it. And then I realized, no, I can't. I've got to go supplement my income even more and go get a full-time job on top of everything else I'm doing in order to make this work. And to do that, I mean, for people to quit their job and just jump in and do it, I always tell them, keep your job. Keep your job and dabble at it. Figure it out first. Once you get to that point and you have a viable second business that you know you can live off that you don't think you can live off yeah. of, then do it. And that's what you did. I mean, I, I know we've talked about, you know, mm-hmm. you spent several years building your business until it finally became a viable second business to where you didn't have to do what you did before. Yeah, and when I when I initially when I walked away, I gave myself a massive cut in pay for multiple reasons. One, because I had built up the the business income and I still had the employment income. So no matter what at that point, and that's another caution people have to have, like when you're building a part-time business, you have to look at the profit in that part-time business like it doesn't exist. Cuz if yeah. you start using it to fund your lifestyle, You'll end up with two jobs instead of a business. I mean, oh, yeah. that's what you'll end up with. You won't be able to walk away from either one. So you have to act like it doesn't exist. And then you, so you, then you take that money and you save it. 
And then when you walk away from your, your job, now you have to live off of that income, and it probably will be less at the point that you're able to walk away because you'll get to a point where you'll realize, if I don't do this full time, I've now kind of hit a plateau. Yeah. And it's it's a scary moment, but you either you either do it or you don't. And believe it or not, Gary, there were actually people who were pissed at me. <laughs> Why? Yeah, because I, I went, went full time with what they were listening to because I wouldn't be doing it in my car anymore and they liked that. And I'm like, I, I can't help you. I can't I can't worry about the fact that this bothers you. I have way too much shit in my own life. But I mean and it wasn't like a hundred people, but it was like a handful of people that were really Like, I can't believe you're doing this. You know, the show will never be the same. And like, so I'm supposed to spend the rest of my life in my car. You just have to drive around every time you do your podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And I have people tell me now, like, it'd be cool if you go do it in the car once, you know, once or twice just for the hell of it. And I think, you know, sometimes maybe I might, but the reality is I, I evolved it. I do so much more with it now than I could have ever done in the car. I can't, couldn't have done this interview with you while I was in the car. I couldn't run expert councils. I wasn't able to do listener feedback shows with the call-ins and all of that stuff. All of those things, uh, you know, history segments and stuff where I can't just rely on five bullet points on a, a note card. All of that stuff is because the show evolved. And that's part of being in business. You have to understand your business has to kind of grow up as well. Well, and, I think and, we're like a mile off the reservation now. Well, yeah. Well, and, and realizing, well, it, 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 I, it's funny because I got into this conversation uh, over this week with a couple people in the survivalist community who were all, you know, starting more in new businesses. And the struggle, well, the thing is, you're not dealing now when you're on the internet based, because my company is internet based as well, that you're not dealing with just the United States. You're dealing with everyone in the world wide web now. Yeah. So you're just a, you're, you're a grain of sand on a beach. I mean, and it's really hard for people to find you. And I think I did the same thing. I thought, oh, if I build a great internet site and I'll have great products, well, people will just come. And it doesn't work that way. And I think that transfers just like into going off the grid is you think you can just pack your stuff up, move, go somewhere, and you're out in the middle of the forest and, the, you know, all the birds are singing and the sun shines out and everything's great. And it doesn't work that way either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, a site is a whole different story, but it's like building a beautiful store in the middle of the Mojave Desert, and when when Google finally indexes you for the first time, you have a dirt road going there, right? And then it's up to you to build the highway infrastructure to that site through links, through articles, through SEO, through marketing, through advertising, through customer referrals, through email marketing. All that stuff takes time, and you're right. It's a lot like building the infrastructure around an off-grid property. You You don't do it all at once. You can't. Well, yeah, and it takes time, and that's what I've learned. I was going to try and do it. I remember my first goal was three years. I said, I can think I could get this done in three years. Then I got overconfident, and I said, I'm going to knock this out in the first year. I'm going to get all my plans together. I'm going to figure this out, and not realizing that no one was going to finance me. I had no clue at this time that I could not get a loan. I went, this is a remote area. People build remote properties. There's got to be a way to finance this. Absolutely not. No one will touch it. Um, so I had to redo it and then I went, okay, go back to reality, Gary, sit down. And now I went back to my original plan, which was three to five, you know, give myself that time. And with that too, is realizing that you're not jumping in. So that property isn't something you're going to live in right away. You're hoping to live in it in the future and you can stop at any given point. You can stop the progress on it. And if you continued your life and, and you kept your job, well, you're not going to have any problems. You just put it on hold for a little bit. And I may have to do that. I don't know what next year is going to bring. I have my budget for this summer, and I'm going to spend it. And when I'm done spending it, that's it. That's far as I can go. 
but I'm living right next to my property in my travel trailer. So it's not like I have to leave because I'm out of money to build on the property. I'm still living in the same neighborhood, you know, so I get to enjoy the area for the six months out of the year still while I'm building the house. So, and that was by planning, you know, I, I thought through the process and it took me a while to find this RV park. It's not listed anywhere. You know, I just got lucky and found it. I can't remember how I found it or if someone told me about it. So, yeah, we, we get off topic a lot, Jack. It's all right. <laughs> Everyone should be used to it by now. I think, what, did we run a marathon interview the last time? I think. Yeah, I think we're at about an hour 39 right now. So we're going we're gonna to kind of yeah. wrap this thing up. But we could just finish up by uh, kind of what is your next phase of this? Where are you going from here? And uh, how can people learn more about all the things that you're doing and, and how they can work with you and, and learn more about your, your projects and, and, your, uh, and your consulting and your books? Um, right now, the uh, first uh, thing I'm doing is uh, leaving about two weeks to head up there. So that's the house building phase. So I'll be doing that immediately. Um, Primal Power Methods in full full swing. Um, getting ready to add three products. I just added uh, my own beef jerky on there, grass-fed beef jerky. And I'm working on getting more products. I've A lot of people have asked me about certain supplements. I carry supplements, some basic exercise equipment, and some food products, and then my books. That's what's on my website. But you can get them through Kindle, iTunes, and Amazon as well. I don't sell any of my supplements or any of my food products on Amazon. Um, there's a whole reason. We could do an episode on that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so I'm, I'm continuing to build that. The easiest way to find me is www.primalpowermethod.com. It links to all my social media. It links to my YouTube page. Actually, all my YouTube videos are on my website on a, a separate page. So they're all there. Um, I'm just going to continue to grow. I'm working on some books. I've got two books I'm working on right now that are cookbooks, um, that are simple. And one is with, uh, they're with partners that I'm working on and I'm working on my off the grid book. So keep, uh, keep looking and, uh, following the best way is my blog. I usually, uh, my blog's pretty personal. I just don't throw crap up there. Uh, I write about what I'm doing or, uh, stuff to help people. So if anyone wants consulting, I've actually, uh, I'm also a practitioner, so I work with clients. Um, I've done it Skype. I work with people one-on-one. Uh, I don't do as much now as I used to just because I'm so busy and it's hard to work one-on-one with people. But I, I charge by the hour. And if you need help, honestly, the most anyone's ever needed is three hours. Hmm. Ever. And I've had huge success. Some of your followers have lost a ton of weight. And they've emailed me and let me know, and uh, they're so gracious and, and so great. I think one guy lost over 100 pounds. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. That's I mean, awesome. the least I think it's been 50, 60. Everyone's done really, really well. Well, there we know you're legit, too, if people only need, you know, three hours with you. The people that are like – I love the people like, my therapist. And I'm like, how long have you been talking to this guy? Like 27 years. I'm like, dude, I – well, I think either need a new therapist or a refund. I, I warn people too up front. I say I'm not here to be your long term coach. Yeah. Uh, my goal is to get you going and get you on your own road on your own as quickly as possible. It's the way I can reach more people, and it's a horrible business model. I've taken the non traditional American way of running a business, which is rip everyone off today, <laughs> and I actually give them a good product that works. And I would be happy to say, uh, since I've started the Primal Power Method, I have had zero products returned and I've received zero complaints. I've never had one complaint. So I'm doing something right. 
um, you know, and it works. I mean, I'm not teaching anything that I don't do on myself. I mean, this is all self-experimentation and working with clients, so I'm not just giving this to you, you know, half-ass. I mean, I've spent a lot of years in this learning it. So I take it very, very personally, and I work very hard to make sure clients get results. Well, cool, man. Well, and I also appreciate you being here with us again today, and I wish you the best as you continue to build out your property up in Washington State, man. Thanks a lot, Jack. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spearco today along with Gary Collins helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution.